Welcome to Growing Your Financial Advisory Practice podcast by Snap Projections, episode 14. I'm your host, Pavel Braminski, and my goal is to interview experts to provide you with insights, strategies, and actionable tactics that you can start applying to grow your financial advisory practice today. For more information, head over to snapprojections.com slash podcast. Now, let's introduce today's featured guest. Today's guest is Jason Heath. Jason is a certified financial planner and managing director of Objective Financial Partners in Toronto. He has been providing fee-only, advice-only financial planning since 2001 and is one of Canada's best-known fee-only financial planners. Jason has a particular interest in working with clients with complex planning issues, including business owners and Canadian expats living in other countries. In addition, Jason is a personal finance columnist in the Financial Post and Money Sense and a regular contributor to RetireHappy.ca. Jason, welcome to the show. Hey, Paul. Thanks for having me. Uh, Jason, very excited to have you on. Let's dive in. So uh, tell me about your firm. Um, what do you do and who do you serve? Well, we uh, primarily work with individual clients who are looking for objective uh, financial advice. We don't sell investments or insurance or any type of financial products. So the people coming to us typically know that and are going out of their way to look for uh, unbiased financial planning. We do sometimes collaborate as well with third parties in the investment or insurance uh, industries. Um, we're looking for financial planning for their clients as well and may not have that area of expertise in-house. Excellent. So uh, so let's go back to some of the ideal clients that you serve. Who, who are, when you look at your client base, who do you typically work with? I'd say everybody. Um, I, I wish I had a better elevator pitch to say that I work with you know young doctors or something like that, but I don't. And and as a firm, we don't. We we work with a very diverse group of clients, young, old, uh, varying levels of wealth, uh, business owners, employees, retirees, even geographically. Last year, I would say approximately fifteen percent of our clients were expats. So Canadian citizens living outside of Canada who in many cases and most cases are planning to eventually retire back to Canada. A lot of people all over Canada as well were in the greater Toronto area, but a good number of our clients are in other provinces. Excellent. So, you know, you just mentioned a couple of uh, very specific targets like business owners and Canadian expats uh, living abroad. So I want to go back to that. But, you know, let me let me just go back to your background. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about, about your background? And, you know, really, what made you start a planning firm back in 2001, right? I mean, you're yeah. one of the early, early ones. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. I, I When I look back to the, the very start, I actually went to university for theater. Um, I uh, really enjoyed theater in high school and uh, went to York University for uh, acting of all things. And I was there maybe two weeks before I realized that it wasn't uh, a good fit for me. One of my classmates was actually Rachel McAdams, um, who went on and has become a a great actress. And uh, the people that I was there with were really, really passionate about theater and about acting. I kind of liked it. But I realized that uh, I liked math and number crunching and figuring stuff out, switched to economics, studied economics at university ultimately. And um, I ended up going to work for a small uh, fee-only financial planning firm in Markham back in 2001, kind of by accident. I was working at uh, a bank at the time and wasn't really that interested in uh, the broader financial industry, kind of disillusioned, to be honest. 
And I picked up a newspaper, local newspaper, small local newspaper that was sitting on my mother's coffee table. And I was flipping through and there was a help wanted ad for a financial planning firm. I thought, financial planning, I like financial planning and applied for the job, not really understanding what fee only uh, financial planning meant. And, and frankly, I think I was there a couple months before I really figured it out. And uh, worked there for about 10 years, providing financial planning for a fee without any sale of uh, corresponding uh, investments or insurance products. And about six and a half years ago, I decided for lifestyle reasons more than anything to start my own company. And uh, here we are today. Excellent. Okay. Well, this is uh, this is an interesting story. So uh, you mentioned earlier uh, about... Uh, fee-only financial planning and also just potential collaboration with other um, other experts, for example, investment managers. So let's maybe just uh, even start distinguishing some of those terms because I think there's still a lot of confusion. So let's go back to the um, to the basics. So how would you distinguish the fee-only financial planning from, for example, from fee-based investment management? Yeah, I find that there's a lot of blurring of the lines. I come across a lot of people today that, that call themselves fee-only and I don't think it's, um, you know, in- intentional that the lines are blurred. Uh, a lot of investment advisors charge a fee as a percentage of a client's investment portfolio. And I suppose in that regard, they're paid uh, fees and they're fee only as opposed to commission-based or transactional-based and earning a commission every time they uh, make a, a purchase or a sale. Um, but in the traditional sense, I think of fee-only financial planning as being a financial planner who provides financial planning for a fee. And fee-only advice, uh, I think, in a historic context, refers to fee-for-service or advice-only financial planning, some of those other terms that I like to use to try to distinguish. There's been a lot of good press that fee-only has received in recent years, particularly in the media. And I think that to a certain extent, there might be people out there trying to capitalize on the cachet of fee-only and calling themselves fee-only. Often I get clients who say, oh, I've been looking for a fee-only financial planner for years. And I've I've met other people that have told me they were fee-only, but they weren't really. So Definitely uh, some confusion, but it's one of the reasons I like to use terms like advice only or fee for service to try to distinguish what I do. Excellent. And thanks for explaining that. I do feel and I do find that there is a lot of confusion still in the market. Uh, and I think uh, this uh, kind of fee only, I think advice only is really a much better term. And I think that's that's where we are headed to. Anyway, so you've alluded later on that you work with other professionals uh, in, in the industry. So um, and, and this is one question that I kind of like to ask sometimes. So how financial planners, for example, could work with other professionals, like, for example, insurance brokers or investment managers? How can this collaboration actually um, uh, uh, take place? Because as, uh, as a fee-only uh, planner, you just, uh, you, well, just, I don't want to say just, but you, you provide really the structure and, and the, really the planning and all the details around the financial plan, right? But there is this implementation part where the products actually uh, fall, um, uh, well, they, they need to be considered and fall into place. So how do, how do you work and how, uh, how financial planners could actually uh, work with, uh, with other professionals in the market? Yeah, I, look, I'd say sometimes it, it happens in a very loose way. And I guess what I mean by that is uh, there are some third parties that literally just refer clients. Um, I can think of investment uh, advisors, even at the big banks that uh, have referred business to to me over the years. 
sometimes because they have a client who's looking for independent uh, planning, or sometimes they they just think it's a better fit than than what they could get in house. Um, you know, there's an employment lawyer that uh, refers business to us sometimes when someone has received a severance and and needs to make a, a big decision on uh, their pension or a severance package. So there are some of those sort of loose uh, referral arrangements that we have in place. In other cases, it's more formal. Um, We have investment and insurance firms that will hire our services sometimes for their clients, uh, either by covering the cost of our fee or doing a a copay with their client, for example. In some cases, we even do white label financial plans where the advisor, uh, whatever type of advisor they they are, typically within the investment industry though, will collect data uh, regarding the client and pass along information for us to build a plan. Um, And in some of those cases, we literally build a white label plan and, and give it back to them to then present to their client. So, Um, There are collaborations going on like that as well, which uh, I think work particularly well. You know, the the third-party professional can do whatever it is they're best at doing, whether it's investments or insurance, and we can do what what we're best at at doing as well. Excellent. And I'm glad that you are describing this this way, right? So it doesn't have to be very very structured. It could be formalized, but there's so many different ways uh, of approaching this, right? And and, uh, I I think those are different uh, sort of situations uh, require different approaches. So that's that's great that you're so flexible in this approach. So let's go back to your your clients and let's go back to uh, some of the clients that's in your target market. So you mentioned uh, Canadian expats living abroad. So so this is very interesting to me. So what kind of issues can you, planning issues can you actually encounter when you're serving those kind of clients? Yeah, it, it can be really complicated because, um, you know, sometimes there are expats that have gone abroad and uh, they still have investments in Canada, for example, um, RSP investments that uh, literally can't be moved to another country because RSPs don't exist in, in other countries. And um, certainly you can cash in an RSP, but more often than not, people will leave their RSPs in place. Some expats have Canadian rental properties. They've kept their home that they lived in and they're renting it out uh, while they're abroad and there's tax and uh, other uh, implications related to that. But a lot of the expats that we work with find themselves in situations where they might be in, you know, um, the Middle East, they might be in Asia, they might be, you know, anywhere in the world building up money and, and how do they invest? Where do they invest? Can they open an investment account back in Canada? Should they open a, an investment account uh, abroad? What sort of asset allocation should they have to eventually plan to move back to Canada and in some cases to be able to buy a home to retire to? A lot of them who don't own real estate in Canada are contemplating whether they should, you know, should I buy a rental property and um, plan for that to be the home that I move to and retire to uh, eventually. A lot of times expats working abroad, we happen to work with a lot of uh, expat teachers who sometimes are in contract positions where they don't really have uh, much in the way of insurance. Mm -hmm. You know, do they have the adequate uh, life and disability insurance? A lot of moving parts, wills, estate planning. Um, so it's a, it's a very unique aspect uh, that is part of our practice. We've had a, a good relationship 
over the last number of years with Andrew uh, Hallam, who has written uh, a couple of uh, great books for not only Canadian investors, but also for uh, Canadian and uh, international expats. And that's what has resulted in uh, a lot of expats reaching out to us and this uh, sort of weird and wondrous uh, specialty that uh, we've developed over the years. That's excellent. This is very, very interesting, very unique. Uh, so, um, and I'm, I'm sure we could be talking a little bit more, uh, a little longer about this. So, uh, what about other, uh, the other target sort of target, tar- uh, the target markets that you serve? So you mentioned business owners, and I think elderly parents as well. So, let's talk about those two. Let's maybe start with the business owners. Yeah, you know, with business owners, uh, I think it um, not not to say that uh, an employee who's planning for retirement and making financial decisions can't have complexities in their own situation, but. Having a business, I, I find, just creates that much more uh, complexity. If somebody is a sole proprietor and is not incorporated, their tax returns are a little bit more complex. They have the option to incorporate their business. Uh, a lot of business owners obviously are incorporated, whether it's a professional like a doctor or, or a lawyer or uh, somebody with some other type of business that, that they run, you know, having money that's going into your corporation, how do you pay yourself out? Do you take a salary? Do you take dividends? You know, new income splitting rules have come into effect for 2018. How does that impact uh, past practices? You know, should you be building up money in your corporation to invest? Should you be opening up a holding company? Should you contribute to RSPs? You know, business owners don't have pensions or um, often don't have group benefits like an employee would. So business owners often have insurance coverage. Just tend to be a lot more moving parts with business owners and with expats, a lot more gaps where we have opportunities to provide input. But, you know, we certainly don't go out of our way to work with business owners. We just end up working with a lot more business owners, more complexity. And, and frankly, we, we even have other financiers to our competitors, effectively, of ours who sometimes refer more complex clients like business owners to us because it's more in line with the type of work that we're able to assist with and they may not be able to. Perfect. So, well, it's a big market, right? So, if you want to focus on, uh, if you want to be very successful, you want to focus on on very low, uh, on very small niche, and and uh, mm-hmm. serve this niche as well as you can, and then I'd refer uh, maybe other cases, other uh, clients to to friends, which which is perfectly fine. So, uh, do you see, especially with those rules this year, uh, basically the, the income splitting rules, the the income sprinkling, and especially taxation on. Um, passive investments in a corporation. Do you see a lot more business owners having those kind of questions? Do you see a lot of kind of a lot more uh, kind of uh, um, I don't know uh, questions around basically those kind of topics? Yeah, I would say yes, but not enough. And I guess what I mean by that is it's very interesting the conversations that I've had with clients over the past year that either conflict with what their accountant has told them or just that they haven't had with their accountant at all. Um, and not to pick on accountants, but you know, I, I think some accountants have an expertise in, in doing a tax return and um, you know, getting the right numbers in the right boxes, but, but may not necessarily have tax planning expertise. And I've had clients who've been told by their accountants to continue with 
past practices, even though technically it's offside relative to the new income splitting rules, you know, paying large dividends to family members who, um, you know, should be caught up and, and paying tax at the highest tax rate now under the new regulations or people who pay large salaries that are unjustified to family members that they shouldn't be. So um, although there have been questions and there have been people that uh, have significant impacts on their long-term retirement planning that were rejigging things, there's a lot of, I don't want to say misinformation. Misinformation sounds like, uh, you know, intentional, but misunderstanding, I suppose, of how these new rules uh, play into planning. I think it's just the nature of financial planning. Is, you know, there's a lot of complexity, especially in those kind of yeah. more complex cases, right? So that's uh, it's uh, so probably that's the the, the source of it. Um, and uh, the the other thing is that you mentioned planning for for elderly parents. So can you tell us a little bit more about uh, your approach to planning for uh, elderly parents? Yeah, you know, I, again, I would say it's not necessarily an area that we've gone out of our way to to target. Part of it has happened naturally. You know, as our client base uh, evolves and as our client base ages, we have more clients who are getting into an age and stage where they have, you know, harder conversations they need to have about long-term care or, you know, uh, one of two spouses dies or develops some sort of an illness. Um, More and more, I'm finding with clients that we work with on an ongoing basis, conversations are happening as it relates to their parents, just in the context of their own planning, things that are coming up. And I think it's a really important practice area for financial planning. Um, You have people who have, you know, related expertise, whether it's doctors, whether it's estate lawyers, whether it's advisors who might provide a little bit of the context for discussions uh, regarding getting older and baby boomer generation and, and you know, their parents uh, getting to an age and stage in their life when there's uh, more planning involved. But I think it's a, a practice area that uh, should be even more developed, more family meetings going on between aging parents and their children, um, more children proactively talking to their parents about uh, their estate planning and their finances and what they want to happen if they develop some sort of a long-term care issue or an illness. Are their wills up to date? Where is everything? You know, what are their assets? What's the inventory of uh, mom and dad's financial planning? So I think it's something that uh, financial advisors, children, and, and even the, the particularly the parents that are impacted need to be um, putting at the forefront of financial discussions. Excellent. And I think there's also a lot of opportunities for financial planners to add value, right? Because as you uh, involve a lot of different people in a conversation, there are the parents, of course, children, and there's a lot more uh, potential, for example, issues that uh, the planning can help solve, right? So, so I think this is also an opportunity for, uh, for, um, for planners. Okay, great. So, um, so, uh, uh, the planning for for uh, elderly parents, business owners, you know, Canadian expats. So this is a very different. These are very different target markets, right? In some cases, right? It could be maybe sure. like it, but uh, so so I want to talk to you about your your financial planning process. So how do you uh, structure your operations and your financial planning process in a way that you can serve all those clients, even though they're so so different, uh, profitably? 
Yeah, yeah. It's um, these days I, I would find our we're in, incredibly busy, which is a which is a good thing. Um, we are cognizant of the fact that uh, we sell time, and the more time that we spend with each individual client, the higher the fee needs to be. And something we've tried to move towards more these days is having clients do the bulk of the data collection process on their own. So when we speak to a prospective client and we determine um, what the engagement is going to be, whether we're building out a, uh, a retirement projection, whether we're doing a comprehensive financial plan, whether we're talking about just tax and estate planning related to a particular component of their finances, like their business. Once we understand the mandate and we've provided an engagement letter to summarize our services and fees and privacy policy and things like that, we give them some homework to do. And we say, okay, here's the information we need from you. Sometimes it's a specific list of uh, these answers to these questions. Sometimes it's a questionnaire that compiles the data that, uh, that we need. And then we also give them a list of hard copy or, or soft copy for that matter, but source documents that would be helpful to see. And that could include uh, investment statements, insurance policies, tax returns, wills, other ancillary uh, documents, pension, things like that, trust deeds. Once we've got all that collected by the client, um, then we go to work and analyze it. And if we need to, we circle back with the client to clarify uh, anything in advance of a meeting. I know a lot of financial planners tend to sit down and have a data collection meeting and um, you know have another meeting with the client in order to collect all that data. But again, if we're doing that, that's time, that's money, that increases our fees. Uh, so in order to make our process as efficient as possible, we try to have the client do most of the data collection. Usually they do a pretty good job. I find the, the area where they make mistakes is as it relates to budgeting. If we're doing any sort of cash flow or retirement modeling exercises, you know, to have someone sit down and estimate what they spend on food and clothing and things like that, 90% of people get it wrong. Um, so I find that that process definitely needs more discussion with the client. Um, you know, how much is your after-tax salary how much is your mortgage you know what sort of extraordinary expenses did you have last year and how much did you save because when people sit down and estimate their expenses i find you you know you you look at what their after-tax income is you look at what they say or what they think their expenses are and you say okay well you must have saved twenty five thousand dollars last year and frequently the client says no i didn't save anything in fact i added ten thousand dollars to my line of credit because we had a you know, new roof that we needed to put on or something. And through discussion, you often find that the after-tax spending, the, the basic living expenses that, that people have tend to be much higher than they would ever estimate. So things like that, I find, require uh, discussion. Um, business owners, it's hard to put down in a questionnaire the information that you need to collect from a business owner. I find it's much easier to ask for copies of uh, a T2 tax return and financial statements and then possibly go back and talk to their uh, accountant uh, about uh, corporate structure or um, you know other components of uh, their corporation that uh, are important for planning purposes. But 
you know, once we've got all the data collected from a client and once we feel that we've got all the answers we need to, to delve in and, and get to work, we prepare whatever analysis we're preparing, whether it's a you know retirement plan, whether it's a review of investments, tax, estate planning, um, prepare for uh, a meeting and try to be sitting down with our first meeting with uh, a client with a very in-depth agenda and uh, deliverables to be able to present to them. Excellent. So you're trying to basically put as much honest on the on the client initially, right? Just to keep the fees low, uh, lower for for the client, which is great, I think, uh, for some clients. And of course, the clients that you know, they need a little bit more of your help, they you can you can help. But of course, that's going to cost them a little bit more. So how do you approach those some kind of engagements? Uh, do you have uh, uh, I don't know, just uh, uh, pricing for for example for you know a simpler plan or maybe very comprehensive plan, or just this kind of ranging based on let's say the comprehensive plan will be between I don't know fifteen to 20 hours at, I don't know, $250 an hour, for example. How do you approach the pricing of the different engagements? Yeah, it depends. I would say that more often than not, um, probably probably 90% of the work we do is a flat fee or an annual fee. Uh, maybe 10% these days is uh, hourly. And generally just through discussing things with the client up front, we get a sense of what uh, what they need and what they're looking for. I've got a, a client, for example, um, who contacted us recently. She's going through a divorce and is, um, you know, it, it's, a, it's a friendly divorce. She and her husband or soon-to-be ex-husband are trying to determine how best to divvy up assets what are the tax implications? Um, and they've reached out to us just to, to look at some of the components of their uh, financial picture and give some input to them and some input to their divorce lawyer, for example, on um, you know how to reallocate assets and how to divvy things up. That's a very difficult engagement to quote a flat fee because it could be an hour, it could be 10 hours. So that's uh, a place where we've quoted a, an hourly engagement. But if someone comes to us and it's a um, husband and wife and they're both salaried employees, and they both have pension plans, they're looking to retire in five years and they want a retirement model built out, we've got a, a reasonably good sense of how much work is going to go into collecting data, preparing a plan, and ultimately presenting it to the client that we can quote a flat fee. Um, some of our clients that we work with on an ongoing basis where we charge an annual retainer fee, we have a rough sense of how much work will go into an annual meeting and then some ongoing phone and email support. And with the ongoing clients that pay an annual fee, um, again, built into to their services, uh, a couple of hours of phone and email support over the year. Some people won't use any of the phone and email support allocation. Um, other clients might end up using three or four hours this year, but might not use any next year. And we try to have fees that are in line with, uh, you know, what the average client would need in between meetings over the course of the year, so that it all shakes out across our client base. But more often than not, I find you can quote a, a flat fee or an annual fee, and it's not that often that I find that uh, we're we're too far off. 
Excellent. Okay. So can you give us an idea of what would be the kind of the initial engagement, the, what would be the kind of average flat fee that you would charge and how much, for example, would you charge for the kind of ongoing annual review? Yeah, I'd say it sort of depends on the exact nature of the engagement, how complex someone's situation is, whether they're single, whether they're married, whether they're a business owner and, and so on. But I would say that our fees will generally range from sort of let's say $1,500 up to um, $7,500, um, $7,500 being a very in-depth engagement. Um, usually $2,500 to $5,000, I would say, would be most of our um, retirement plan or more comprehensive financial plan uh, initial fees. Clients that we work with on an ongoing basis, uh, fees will generally be uh, more on the $2,500 uh, range for a simpler engagement could be higher for a more complex situation or if we're doing a client's income tax returns as well, for example. So really just depends on the, the situation and we try our best to personalize it to what a client's needs are. Um, and the flat fee model I find works pretty well from the perspective that you don't have to worry if you're asking too many questions or you don't have to worry if you've told a client that it's going to be a one meeting engagement, for example, and you get two hours into the meeting and realize, boy, I still have another hour of stuff to talk about. You don't feel so bad saying, why don't we cut it short, guys? And why don't we do a, a follow-up uh, meeting to finish this discussion? If you sell time and you sell uh, your services on an hourly basis, that can be a deterrent from a client that's worried that you're trying to run the bill up. So it's a balance, right? I think some people would prefer to pay hourly, but, uh, but again, I'd say 90% of the time we do flat fee or annual fee. Perfect. And you know, the fact that you really are focused uh, so much on the flat fee and that's kind of, you said, around 90% of, of, the, of the engagement, it means that you have a really good grasp on, on determining what it would be the fee for this particular situation. So, uh, so that's really good. Uh, so that's a uh, well-run business. So that's congratulations. If, if you work with enough clients, I find it makes it that much easier because, you know, you know, over however many hundreds of clients or you know, I probably worked with thousands. Well, I've definitely worked with thousands of clients in my career you get a good sense of how long things should take. And if there is the, the outlier that takes much more, much less time, um, you know, we'll, we'll build into our engagement letters that if there is an extraordinary situation, then we'll make a client aware of it. But it's very, very rare that we've had to speak up and say, hey, this is, you know, beyond what we agreed to. Um, but, you know, something for, for planners out there to be cognizant of, but, uh, but also for, for clients. Excellent. So uh, you mentioned thousand or over thousand clients. And, you know, you you've been doing this for for a long time. So what, uh, 2001, uh, 17, 18 years, maybe. Yeah. Uh, so so you've seen a lot of you've seen a lot of change in the industry over the years as well. So um, I'm going to ask you a more general question about that. So how do you think the kind of financial advice delivery is evolving, uh, or has evolved over over the last you know 15, 20 years? What 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 have you seen, and what kind of what can, what things can we expect going forward? It's a good question. You know, um, one thing I can say that I have noticed in the past, uh, certainly I, I found as a, as a fee-for-service financial planner, it was a much more difficult sell to get a client to write a check for financial planning. It was such a foreign concept in the past. Now, 
we have clients who are coming to us because they want to write a check for financial advice. So definitely awareness has been increasing as it relates to different business models. But one thing that I've also found as well is in the past, clients would hire us for financial planning. And now I find people are contacting us for a financial plan. And I think the distinction is important. You know, having a, a written financial plan, having a, a retirement plan that tells an individual based on their personal circumstances, how much money they need to save every month in order to retire when they're 62 years old, holding 100 factors constant, of course, um, is, is the commodity. People want a retirement plan. People want a financial plan. And that's one distinction that I have uh, found recently. And I don't know if it's a, a good thing or a bad thing that it's become uh, a commodity, but definitely lots of new business models evolving, robo-advisors, more do-it-yourself investors, obviously more tools than ever uh, for an investor to choose how to invest their money beyond just mutual funds, which were really the only game in, in town until the, the 90s here in, in Canada. So lots of change going on, and I think we're going to see a lot of compression of the industry as well. Excellent. I think so. I think so too. Fully agree. All right. So you've, you're clearly successful. We've been doing this for 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 a while. So, but you know, on, on the way of building the practice and, and starting for, with for, with the first firm and then building your practice, you've had some cha- some challenges. So what kind of challenges have you encountered in, in uh, so far in building your practice? Yeah, it's, that's a very good question as well. You know, I, I'd say one of the biggest challenges that I've seen has been time management uh, when you have a lot of clients and when you have a lot of clients in my case who pay ongoing retainer fees that I need to be available for I find that it it can be tough because sometimes you get a big situation you get a client who's received uh, lost their job and received a severance and needs to make a decision or something extraordinary that's happened or even just you know quick little questions that you don't account for and I find every day there's an hour two hours, five hours of work that I don't plan for that just emerges. And it can make keeping my day between nine and five very difficult. So certainly from a practice management perspective, any other financial planners out there listening, that is very tough. And you need to plan for the unexpected and find ways to, to, uh, to manage your time effectively. Beyond that, I would say another difficult practice management impediment I've seen is recurring revenue. It's tough as a, as a fee-for-service financial planner because sometimes you, you build a plan, you sit down, you have a meeting, you shake a client's hand, and you never see them again. Um, some people just need a plan. Again, going back to the commodity uh, and the commoditization of, of financial planning, you know, I'm 58 years old, I'm, I'm retiring next year, and I want to know how much I can afford to spend. And you build a plan and the client's gone and you may not work with them again. And for people that are converting businesses or just starting out in the industry, you need to have an ongoing supply or pipeline of clients in order to have recurring revenue. I mentioned that I have a lot of clients who I work with on an ongoing basis who pay an annual retainer fee, who I work with and meet with year in, year out. You know, some of them are clients I've worked with for 15 years and I'll probably work with for the rest of their lives. Um, but it takes years to develop those client relationships. And it's one of the real impediments 
from people breaking into the fee-only industry. Because if you don't sell investments, you don't sell insurance, you haven't got ongoing recurring revenue, it can be tough to make your practice successful. Especially from the get-go, uh, for sure. So, uh, you know, Jason, before we wrap up, I want to kind of flip this question uh, and to, and to ask an, and you know, related question uh, in terms of you know what were the challenges? You know, uh, what the question would be? You know, what made you successful in building your practice? Like, what are so? Can you attribute uh, maybe uh, one or a couple of things that really made you successful? That really help you to kind of go through those difficult periods when you're building the practice, uh, and uh, and what really uh, uh, helped you to basically build the practice to what it is today? Yeah, I, I wish I, I had the, the perfect potion or the perfect answer, but I can say that a lot of what has made me successful has been uh, luck, you know, meeting the right people at, at the right time. I've been very, very lucky, I think, in, in my career, thankfully. Um, but when I look back, particularly when I started this company six and a half years ago, um, I was just starting to build a bit of a media Presence was doing interviews, had started to write for the Financial Post. So I had some good things going in that regard, but I was still leaving a company and, and starting fresh for the most part, trying to build a, a practice, trying to build a, a client base. And there were a lot of days, not even days, there were a lot of weeks where I ran around and I was here, there, and everywhere in meetings and shaking hands and kissing babies and you know, doing all the stuff you need to do to, to lay the groundwork for a successful practice. But there were weeks where I probably worked 80 hours and didn't get paid um, or, or didn't really have billable hours when I, when I looked back at it. And a lot of those seeds that I planted six and a half years ago, let alone, you know, many years before that, are starting to, um, you know, develop now. And sometimes it can be a very tough process when it comes to networking and, um, you know, marketing yourself and, and putting things out there and meeting with people. And it's amazing now referrals I'm getting from people that I met with years back who just remembered my, my name um, or clients that I spoke with years back that are reaching out now. So certainly that's one thing that, that made me successful, I think, is just persevering and, and knowing that these things would, uh, would pay off. Something else I can say is that I've, I've really stuck to my guns in terms of what I do. Uh, I've never been involved in investments or insurance sales and have no aspirations. Um, I've got a very focused practice and I think a story that's very different from a lot of people. And for fee-only, fee-for-service, advice-only financial planners, you have a very unique story to tell. For a financial advisor who's in the, the broader financial industry, I think it's that much more important to become the financial advisor or the financial planner who focuses on doctors or who works with aging business owners with succession issues or, or whatever. It's, it's really important to distinguish yourself somehow, regardless of your place in the industry. Excellent. This is perfect advice, especially uh, really good advice for somebody who's maybe going through a small uh, to a small dip right now. Just you know, uh, persevere, stick to your guns, and, and be really focused, right? Because you mentioned you've been lucky, right? But luck is really a pre uh, preparation multiplied by the opportunity, right? So as much as you have you prepared and it you, it sounds like you've laid a really good foundation uh, for the practice. I mean, you are basically reaping the benefits of it right now, which is great. Uh, so, Jason, this podcast is all about growing your practice. Do you have any other? parting words of wisdom for the listeners? Yeah, you know, 
One thing I can say is that I've always tried to stick to who I am and uh, the type of clients that uh, that I want to work with and the type of work that that I want to do. And when I think back years back, you know, when I was much younger than I am now, and I had to appear older, I mean, you know, 25 years old and trying to provide financial advice to 75 year olds, three times my age, I was putting on a suit and a tie and trying to look polished and growing some facial hair, <laughs> trying to look older, you get a little bit older and then you're trying to look younger. Right. But, um, you know, these days I, I find I, I don't put on a suit and a tie to, to meet with, uh, with clients. Um, you know, I'm uh, business casual. Our office is uh, nice, but not fancy. Uh, I don't try to be a, a fancy talking, um, you know, big shot. I try to be pretty down to earth. And, and uh, I find that it, it ends up attracting the clients that I want to work with. Um, I like working with people that are just, you know, regular people. I try to put things out on the table and talk about my personal life, my family and things that are going on because it helps you to relate to people in a different way than if you're just trying to be that polished financial advisor, the wolf of Wall Street, the you know image that many people have of financial advisors. I try to be much more of a, a lay person. And uh, I think it's really helped me to end up working with these awesome clients that I really want to, to work with. That's an awesome advice. Awesome piece of advice. It's a unique positioning. Uh, for sure. So Jason, if anyone uh, wants to get a hold of you, how would they do that? What's the best way to reach you? Uh, I would say uh, check out our website, uh, objectivefinancialpartners.com, www.objectivefinancialpartners.com. I'm uh, at Jason Heath CFP, as in Certified Financial Planner on uh, Twitter. Um, contact information in terms of uh, email and phone is uh, is on the website. Um, I've got two other awesome financial planners that uh, are part of the team, Nancy Rooney and Brenda Hiscock uh, as well. So, um, you know, keeping busy these days and uh, really loving what we're doing for clients and the way that the industry is evolving over time. That's fantastic. We'll link it in the show notes. So, Jason, this has been uh, fantastic. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Paul. I appreciate it. And that's it for this episode. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at podcast at snapprojections.com. And if you're enjoying the show and want more of the amazing guests sharing incredibly valuable knowledge, head over to iTunes and leave us a great review, which helps us get discovered. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.